Hey, everybody, welcome back to Gear 30 on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can head over to blisterreview.com to see everything we're doing and reviewing, including our most recent Off the Couch podcast with Jean-Luc Diard. Now, every single listener of Gear 30, I mean this, you all need to go check out this Off the Couch podcast conversation with Jean-Luc. It is fascinating. It is this sort of masterclass on product design and product innovation. And the whole time that we were recording that conversation together, I was just thinking this just is the like quintessential Gear 30 episode. So go please check that out. And also Jean-Luc is just a fascinating person. So don't miss that one. And you know, while you're there, go ahead and subscribe to Off the Couch so you don't miss all these other really good conversations we have over there. Okay, now speaking of good conversations, Today, we've got another edition of Shop Talk, where we talk with one of our various blister-recommended shops to get their perspective on a mix of topics that range from broadly applicable to all of us around the world to topics that help us better understand what's going on in the specific local communities where each of these shops serve. Earlier this week, I had a chance to sit down in Blister headquarters with Tyson Stelrecht, who is the founder of Boise Gear Collective in Boise, Idaho. Tyson and I talked about a whole range of topics, including one very interesting topic that I think a lot of shop folks around the world will want to consider, and that is the selling of both used and brand new gear. Now, I imagine that some shops have considered that and maybe already come to their own conclusion, but still, I think even if that is the case, you ought to hear Tyson out, and I think he makes a really compelling case for the selling of both brand new gear and used gear. So I'm just going to go ahead and let Tyson tell you more about that and how and why and when Boise Gear Collective started selling both new and used gear and also how it's going. And then aside from that, we also talk a bit about backcountry.com. We get Tyson's predictions for the upcoming season. We discuss why it is that Tyson decided not to get into e-commerce at a time when so many shops are, in fact, ramping up their e-commerce efforts. And then, of course, we wrap up by telling you what we're celebrating this week. Oh, and just a reminder here, if you are a fan of Gear 30, don't forget to leave us that five-star rating in Apple Podcasts because... As you know, we already have to go make our Blister Crash Course video of us trying to telemark ski this season. And if you get us to 500 ratings, then we have to go make our Blister Crash Course Snowblades Edition video. And honestly, who doesn't want to see how that goes? So go ahead, leave us that five-star rating while you listen to this conversation here with Tyson Stelrecht. Here we go. Well, Tyson, welcome to Blister Headquarters here in Mount Crested Butte. I'm excited to be here. It's my second time in Crested Butte and my first time in almost winter. Almost winter. When's the last time you were here? Uh, I was here two summers ago. Uh, Trevor, my manager, and I drove back from OR and we did a big mountain bike trip all the way back from Colorado back to Idaho. And we stopped and rode Doctors Park here in, in uh, Crested Butte and it was phenomenal. I'm just finding this part out. So well done. Okay. So you've ridden bikes here. You haven't yet skied here. Haven't skied here. Well, it's good having you here. And we've already had some good conversations today. And so, you know, it was cool when I learned that you were going to be making a bit of a trek through Colorado and the rest, I reached out and was like, well, you should just come by, right? Thanks for making the trip to this part of the state. Because it's a little out of the way. Like you kind of look at a map and go, Crested Butte is like not that far off the interstate. And then you're like, oh, my <laughs> next stop is Aspen, but it's four and a half hours away. But <laughs> it's only like 40 miles that way. Some, sometimes in life, the good things are kind of hidden. You yeah, know? The, the mountains get in the way or, or are the answer sometimes. Uh, yeah. But our goal here today is to learn a bit more about Boise Gear Collective. You guys are doing some things 
at Boise Gear Collective that are just simply different than a lot of places around here. So we're going to talk a lot about that. But before we get started, I kind of wanted to talk a bit about just Boise, Idaho in general. You know, I feel like Boise doesn't often get talked about as much as maybe certain other, you know, places and outdoor areas of recreation. And so, I don't know, for people listening around the world who might not be familiar, tell me a little bit about how you would sort of describe the outdoor scene in the Boise area. Well, that's pretty easy. I've actually got a story that I like to tell quite a bit that really sums it up and fairly concisely. So whenever somebody asks me about Boise, I always think back to this one day that me and a couple of buddies got up early. We did a dawn patrol at Bogus Basin and got a ski lap in. We had our mountain bikes on the trucks, and then we did a 10-mile mountain bike ride. And then we had our whitewater gear and our rafts ready to go, and we went up and did a really high-water run on world-class whitewater. And we did that all between like 6 a.m. and 4 p.m. And I don't think there's a lot of places in the world that you can go to go do that. And, and I think that really sums up a lot of what what Boise is. And, and the other nice part about that is we didn't see a lot of people. Now, that is changing as we're just getting out about Boise because as what I'm doing here is talking about how awesome Boise is. And Boise has been on, on a top five or top ten list by anybody who put one out for places to live in the past decade. So, you know, Boise is just absolutely exploding right now. And a lot of the people who are moving there are moving there because of the outdoor opportunities. Talk to me about the ski areas, like in the surrounding area. So what do, what do we got? Well, so we've got our, our local mountain that you can see from town is Bogus Basin. And it's a nonprofit run. Season passes are 329 bucks for the year uh, during the pass sale. I want to say it's like 1,800 feet and 1,800 acres. And it's got, it's got some good terrain. There's some really, really fun stuff to pop off of there. And it's just a really good culture up there and kind of very mom and poppy type feel. Uh, we've got Tamarack a little bit north, and then we've got Brundage further north than that up in McCall. Brundage is about three hours away. Uh, Brundage has really good snow, a um, little bit lower angle stuff, but they do have the lake lake area, and there's, uh, there's like some 40-degree stuff in there that you can go ski. Uh, we do have very good backcountry skiing um, within a couple-hour drive. We've got Big Creek Summit. We've got Galena Summit. Uh, we've got Moores Creek Summit. And then we have the Sawtooth, which we are is our flagship mountain range in Idaho. And the skiing in the Sawtooth is unmatched. I mean, it's it's as good as any other place on the face of the planet. Um, you can get as rowdy as you want to get there, or you can ski low angle, comfortable stuff. There's multiple huts that you can rent um, for your, for like a week at a time if you want to. It's a great company there called uh, Sawtooth Mountain Guides, and they do a ton of great avalanche education and run the yurts up there. Check them out, definitely. Give them a little plug. So interesting timing of your trip here to CB because you and I first got to know each other like almost exactly a year ago. Exactly a year ago. Yeah. And um, I had actually just written a piece, I think called Boycott Backcountry, because if some people may remember, you know, there was a lot of stuff coming out about backcountry.com and some of their treatment about a number of independent entities, some gear shops, some other non-shop entities, you know, and we were kind of just starting to go down that road and to try to figure out what was going on. And I think you actually reached out to me and were just saying, hey, you know, we've kind of been affected by some of this. And I, I think that's how we first got to start talking. And, um, you know, I know that in your case, there were some steps taken and we, this was documented on Blister. I mean, we talked about some of the follow-up that you had experienced, but I guess like a year later, I just would be curious to get your take on how things have been going with backcountry.com and you know, just to hear an update on some of the steps maybe they've taken since sort of some of the news was initially coming out. Yeah. So I want to jump in, I think, with just a, a touch more kind of the backstory on on how this whole thing happened for people listening who might be a little bit lost at this yeah. point. So basically what backcountry.com did was they were trying to own the word backcountry. And anybody who used the word backcountry in any kind of part of their business name 
basically they sent their lawyers after them. Yeah. So I was actually one of the first companies that was affected by that. Um, when I started my company back in 2012, it was called Backcountry Pursuit. Um, and then basically I got, I was going through the trademark process and their lawyers during the 30 day public uh, comment period said, you can't do that. We, we object to this. And then that kind of started the whole snowball rolling of like, oh, what are we going to do? In the end, um, it was prudent for me as a small business owner, financially going against a many hundred of millions of dollars of your corporation to just rebrand. It was just, that was just the easy thing to do. My name wasn't worth that much to me and all the hassle. And it just so happens that we were going through a, a pretty big evolution as a company as well, which I know we're going to talk about later and kind of my business history, but it all wrapped up nice and neat as far as timing goes. So I was able to rebrand without a, a ton of heartache. I loved, I loved Backcountry Pursuit, but Boise Gear Collective, I love better, honestly. So Jason Blevins broke the story out of the Colorado Sun, and he actually just got a hold of me the other day, and he followed up with me huh. um, and sent me an email and said, hey, how this been a year? How's this thing going? So he was the one who broke the story and and I talked to kind of a bunch of reporters and, and I was honestly fairly vocal in the situation because I, I figured that it was kind of one of those places and times where I was able to kind of stand up for myself and go, you know, this thing's going viral. Like I, I'm going to say my piece on this and, and I'm going to share my, share my mind on this. And so we ended up getting, getting the attention of the CEO at backcountry.com. And, you know, for, for whatever it's worth, he flew up to Boise without any lawyers. And he met with me and my manager, Trevor, and we had a two, two and a half hour conversation in my office. And then we went over to the little brewery next door and we had a couple of beers and had some food. And basically in the end, um, you know, he was kind of wanting to make the situation right. And we came to an agreement that we were going to sell some of their, you know, open packaging, um, used type items, because a big part of what I do with my business. And you know, take some of that stuff that they can't sell new on the website or even on steep and cheap and just kind of make that go away for them. And that, that was a, that was a really nice way where it was like, you know, I can get some really cool inventory that might have a little bit of dirt on it, but it's still a hundred percent usable that we can sell to our customers at a good price and then be able to earn back some of the money that they cost us in the first place by having to have us rebrand because there, that that's no lie. It costs us a lot of money. So, you know, in, in the end, you know, here we sit a year later, um, this was kind of a multi-year contract that I did with them. Uh, that's one of my stops. I got to stop in Salt Lake City on a swing by the warehouse. I've got a big seven by 14 enclosed utility trailer behind my van. And I'm picking up a bunch of ski gear here in Colorado to bring back to Idaho and sell. And, and a big chunk of that's going to be taken up by the stuff that backcountry.com is going to give me to sell on consignment for them. And, you know, I'm going to keep my percentage and I'm going to write them their paychecks, just like I do any of my other consigners or big accounts. And, you know, it gave me, it gave me a way to at least like earn my money back. You know, they didn't write me a check. They, they were under no obligation to write me a check. Technically what they did was within the letter of the law. I don't think it was within the spirit of the law. Agreed. <laughs> um, and I think that's a really important differentiation. Yes. You know, I'm not sitting here saying what they did was, was it, what they did was, was legal. It was within the letter of the law. So you know, having the opportunity to even earn back my money as well as give my customers some really cool stuff from backcountry, I'd say it's gone pretty well. I think in the end, um, you know, I, I hope it becomes more than a, a, the two-year contract that we initially signed. Um, but, you know, we're performing. I think we've got like a 75 or 80% sell-through rate for them already. So, you know, whatever they're giving us, we're selling them and they're getting their money back out of it, which is generally wholesale or a little bit more. So they're getting all their money back out of it and they're also helping us out. So from my perspective, um, I, I've not had a chance to catch up since it's been a year because I know some articles are going to be coming out on how they've taken care of or haven't taken care of other people. Um, I, I can only speak from my perspective and say that, you know, for the most part, like, yeah, you know, they're, they, they took care of me and they're giving me the opportunity to at least earn my money back that I lost that they cost me in the first place. So. We're going to talk in a second here about how you have set up Boise Gear Collective and the way you guys are doing things. But just before we get there, I'd love for you to share a little bit about your background, if you don't mind. It's interesting, right? It's not exactly... I mean, this is the best part, right? It's not like there is some prototypical path that somebody walks through to end up being a shop owner, but it sort of feels like maybe there is something like that. But in your case, nothing really about your backstory seems uh, like some clear linear trajectory. So 
I mean, we could probably spend a few hours on this. We won't do that. But tell us a little bit about like what you used to do. <laughs> yeah. So we, we we had a good conversation over a pizza and beer here just uh, just before coming in to record yeah. this thing. And um, so, yeah, I've got, a, I've got a really interesting backstory. I barely graduated high school and I moved out to Breckenridge, Colorado, and I spent five years being a snowboard bum out there. And when it was time to dry out a little bit and do something with my life, I got into aviation and I uh, worked on private jets for a living. And basically, if you can imagine like... Uh, an airplane cockpit, you probably think about all the old round analog gauges. We call them steam gauges. I gutted all of that out, like wiring everything, like clipping like six inch diameter wiring harnesses and just yarding it completely out of the airplane. And we would start fresh and we would lay in servers and ethernet and touchscreen stuff. And we would do all of this with a couple man crew in a few weeks. And we would do two to $5 million jobs on $30 million airplanes. So yeah, I was an aircraft electronics technician. And basically what it came down to was uh, it was time for me to leave the company that I worked at. Um, but I honestly had fallen in love with Idaho at that point. And I had job offers all over the country and all over the world to do what I was doing because I'd become a really, really good tech. And I just didn't want to leave Idaho. And I had done very well for myself financially um, through this job. We had a military contract that I was able to make some good per diem money on. And I was smart. I paid off my student loans. I bought a house with 20% down. I bought a car in cash. And I just, I had money in the bank. And, you know, I was talking with my dad and kind of debating about this whole thing about like, well, do I start this business? I've got this idea to, to do this thing. And actually, fun story where the idea came from. So I used to be really into adventure motorcycling. And I went over to go see my little brother over in Redmond, Oregon, because that's where he lived. We're both from Wisconsin. We just ended up in the same part of the country. He had just moved there and he wouldn't stop babbling about the store, but he wouldn't tell me what it was. And so he finally took me to the store and it was repeat performance, which has now become the gear fix in downtown Bend. And Josh over there is a really great owner. I've become pretty good friends with him over the years. Um, but I walked in there and like I dropped like 250 or 300 bucks on like used out like outdoor gear, used camping stuff and like used clothing. And I was like, this is amazing. And like all of a sudden a light bulb went on. I was like, there isn't something like this in Boise. And that was about a year prior to the point that I was thinking about really needing to leave my company. And you know, so I was going through this whole thing and, you know, do I, do I start this company or do I not? And I was only 30 years old and I was in a really good financial position. And my dad told me, I remember the conversation very vividly. He said, son, if you fail, you won't be destitute. He's like, I got your back. He's like, you won't be homeless. He's like, you can get back on your feet. You got a great career to fall back on. He's like, you are in no better position to start a business than you are right now. I was 30 years old and no debt and money in the bank and had some equity in the house. And I was able to start my used gear shop on a shoestring. And here we are eight years later now. Eight years later. And I'm talking to you at Blister Gear Review. <laughs> <laughs> could be worse. Yeah, could be a lot worse. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So Gear Fix, that was a bit of, or quite a bit of sort of the inspiration for, for what you went on and started up in Boise. Yeah. And when I started doing research, you know, uh, other places are, are Second Tracks, Next Adventure. What's the one out in Burlington, Vermont? Gear Exchange um, out there. I remember talking to a guy named Ryan Ruddy out there and he was their used gear manager. And the guy just gave me all sorts of time of day. Like I talked with him for hours on the phone and he was just happy to share information. And I was just taking notes. And yeah, I had a lot of inspiration and, and talked to a lot of other similar businesses in different markets while I was writing my business plan to get this thing going. And in turn then too, like I've, I've paid it forward as well. Um, there's actually uh, Dana Drummond uh, that owns the Hoarding Marmot up in Anchorage, Alaska. He called me out of the blue, much the same that I had called other people. And I was actually just up in Anchorage here recently and got to go meet him and see his store and meet him in person for the first time and got a tour of his place. And he gave me some moose and some salmon when before we took off and got on the airplane again. So yeah, it's kind of been a really cool like uh, fraternity of like uh, used gear shop owners. We kind of we kind of all know each other because we're doing something pretty unique in the industry. So why does it feel to me like this model of selling both used and new gear? Why does that still feel like not the most common thing? You know, I don't know why people haven't figured it out yet. Um, I, I mean, I feel like I just have this thing nailed. Honestly, uh, when, when you can take when you can take any customer that walks into your shop and you have something to sell them, whether you are looking for 
somebody who, uh, some college kid who is on a shoestring budget and wants to go skiing comes in and goes like, I've got 200 bucks. Like, can I get skis, boots, bindings, and poles and go skiing for 200 bucks? Oh, and I need probably need a jacket too. It's like, well, if you got 250, I can probably get you set up for that. Or now that we're carrying, um, since we started carrying new stuff a couple of years ago, because I was strictly used stuff for my first five years in business. Um, we just started bringing on new retail here uh, two and a half years ago. Um, but now we have Moment and Icelandic skis. And now that we're building those brands in Idaho, and they are hot ski companies right now. I mean, we have people coming in and going, yeah, I want Wildcat 108s with Attack 13 bindings. And yeah, we'll pay you for a ski setup and, and all of this. And I'll pre-buy a couple of tunes for the year. And they'll swipe their card for 1500 bucks and not blink an eye about it. So really, no matter what customer we have, we, we can tailor to them. And in addition to that, then the guy who just bought those Moment Wildcat 108s, if he's the kind of guy who gets new skis every year or every other year, he brings them back into us, sells them only two years old with 40 days on them, 50 days maybe. And then we sell them. He gets money back on his account. He can in turn reuse that money with a 10% bonus to buy new ski gear. And then somebody else can buy those skis and then they're going to go ski them for a couple of years. There's actually this kid's pair of skis that I, I haven't seen this year yet. And I just don't think I saw them last year either, but for like five years in a row, I saw the same pair of kid skis come through that got resold five years in a row because I had my original backcountry pursuit sticker on it. So I was like, Oh, those skis are back again. And like these parents just bring them back in and recycle them and recycle them and recycle them. And they're getting a good deal. And every time I sell them, I make my margin on it. So I'm able to be a profitable business. And so the, the really cool thing about doing both used and new and service, because now we have a big service shop as well, too. I got seven service techs. But being able to take that customer from cradle to grave, as I believe, like one of those sayings in the retail world, like we can, we can help you out with anything that you want. And I think that brick and mortar shops are, are already know that they're limited on what they can do with the pressure from online sales. But it, it's kind of a way that we're future proofed on things because even if you buy new, yeah, you can buy these things that we sell new anywhere else, any one of the other big retailers or, or competitors around town or whatever. But the thing that we do that's unique is they can bring that stuff back in if they either outgrow it, want to upgrade, uh, just didn't like it. Uh, for whatever reason, they want to get rid of it. They're moving to a warm climate and they got to get rid of all their cold weather gear. We have the ability to sell that stuff and we have just buyers lined out the door to buy the used stuff. I mean, it is such a common topic of conversation in all of these outdoor sports, right? Whether we're talking about skiing or snowboarding or mountain biking or climbing, et cetera, et cetera. We talk a lot about how a lot of these sports have a pretty steep barrier to entry and it's a financial one. And that's one of the things that I love so much about this is that you guys are accommodating the broadest range of budgets possible. possible. Yeah. And so if I am a super broke undergrad, you know, or I've got six kids, the odds that I'm going to be able to get hooked up with gear at a place like yours is, well, exponentially better than if I'm just walking into a shop that's only handling new gear. And I, I love that, you know, and I'm not mad at any shop that's making it work, you know, just by selling only new gear at all. But I am really glad that something like this exists as we've talked more about it over the past year. And the fact that you're able to now do both of these things and just play, as you've just said really well, you know, the, the life cycle, the recycling of all of this gear, this just seems like a really nice development and a solution to a problem that a lot of us talk about and hear about. Yeah, it is. It's a, it's a solution. Uh, it is a way for brick and mortar business to remain viable into the future in, in the face of immense pressure from the ease of shopping at home and online and just clicking buy and have it show up at your house. You can't get our stuff online. We don't do anything online. We, we don't do eBay. We don't have an online website. We are 100% just local. Like You got to come to the shop and see what we've got. There's a couple things that I wanted to ask you about, and that's one of them. That statement is so countercultural sounding right now. Almost all of the shops that we talk to are trying to up their digital presence. And you guys aren't doing that. So can you walk us through 
why you think that's true. If you were to open a shop on the West Coast, would you stick with that model? Or is this because of your particular location in Boise? But like, this is not the trend. No, this is not the trend. Um, what I am doing is, is kind of unique in that fashion. And like, I'm actively like not trying to get online. Number one, because I don't do anything half-assed. And if I'm going to do an online sales thing, it's going to have to be a really well-built website. And you're talking about a really sub substantial financial investment to be able to build all that behind the scenes infrastructure to make that work well, because I just see all the pitfalls in that. Like it's just, it, it'd be so hard to do it. And I think the fact that we're not trying to do online sales, lets us focus on what we do do well, which is taking care of the customer who's in person in our store, because we don't have any distraction of any of that stuff. And also everything that we have is one off and you got to come to our store anyways. And by the time you look at it from the business side of things, like especially on the use side to go, okay, I've got to inventory this, photograph it, upload the photos, do the write-up, do all this stuff. Then it's going to be for sale on the floor. So then I've got to have some kind of system in place to go, okay, did it sell online or sell on the floor? Then I've got to pay somebody to monitor where it sold. Then it's going to have to like get packaged up and sold if it went online. Then we've got to take down the ad. Then we've got... I mean, the, the back end side of like internet sales, I, I think that, yeah, everybody's like, oh, great, internet sales, let's go do it. Eh, not from my perspective where I sit in my chair. We are so swamped with trying to do our job well and to the best that we can possibly do it without having that, that I'd rather just keep doing what we're doing right now because life is good, honestly, right now. I guess now would be a good time to say that I feel really, really fortunate sometimes that the ball just bounces my way in life. And I happen to be in one of the businesses on the face of the planet that's actually doing better because of this whole COVID pandemic. People have been clamoring to get outside. We had, we could not get bikes this summer. Do you know that there's no bikes available for sale in North America right now? Yes, I do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've been, I've been talking with Jameis with our brand. I actually had a, a about an hour long conversation with the CEO of Jameis the other day, kind of chatting about, cause I just ordered a container full of bikes, a literal container full of bikes that isn't even going to the Jameis warehouse that's coming straight to my warehouse because we just need bikes for next summer and we know we're not going to be able to get them because that's still going to be such a limited thing. But with this whole COVID thing, I think it's given people a real opportunity to either reconnect with being outside or get outside for the first time and connect with nature. And, and I think that's why some of these outdoor sports are doing so well right now that it just, that's the only safe, acceptable thing that you can do is go outside and go play outside. And I think that the, that if they're, we've always got to find the good in any situation. And I think one of the best things that's going to come out of this whole COVID thing is that a lot of people got connected with nature and getting outside and going to play outside again. I want to hear you say a bit more about, you mentioned that you had been a used gear only shop for like five years before starting to do this mix of used gear, of, of selling used gear and new gear. How easy, not easy, tricky, surprising was that shift to going from being strictly a used gear seller to doing both? Okay. Um, I, I think I'm going to get there, but I think I want to back up a little bit more and give a little bit more of my history on kind of my shop and how it went. Okay. So uh, when I opened up my shop back in 2012... Um, uh, I'm I'm a very ambitious guy. So within two years, I opened a second location out in Eagle, Idaho, which is a suburb of Boise. Um, shortly thereafter, um, I opened another store with a partner, uh, another uh, place up in Washington. Uh, shortly thereafter, I did a consulting gig to open another store over in Oregon. And I've also consulted on opening another couple of other stores. And so it's always kind of been outside of what I'm doing. Like I'm always looking to the horizon. So when it came time, um, our, our neighbor in our downtown location, which I have a killer location right on the main drag in downtown Boise, I'm like four blocks south of the Capitol. When our neighbor was moving out and I had the opportunity to take over all this additional space and we went from 3,000 to 6,000 square feet as well as gain all the glass on Capitol Boulevard in Boise, it was just a no brand. I was going to take it over. At that point, I've been running my, my Eagle location for a couple of years and 
you know, let's just call it, it was breaking even, you know, I, I didn't lose my ass on it. Um, I probably didn't make very much money on it for the couple of years that I had it. And we made the determination, um, we being me and my management team that I have been, Trevor's been with me for seven of the eight years that I've been open. Max has been with me for, was he three or four years now? And I mean, these are just core people to who we are and what we do. And we sat down and talked about it. And we're like, well, we're going to have the space. We probably want to open a service shop and we want to start bringing on new stuff. We wanted to get into kind of having that stuff because with, with used, you're limited on what people bring you. It is only what the general public brings you to sell is all you have to sell. So there were so many times that were like, you know, water filters are a prime example of that. Like people don't get rid of water filters, but people are looking for water filters. And wouldn't it be nice to have like new water filters to sell? So that was just one example of like one of the things. So getting into buying new, suddenly the, the I think one of the, the biggest challenges that I personally had was dealing with the cash flow of it. I was just going, oh, now I've got to buy this stuff instead of consignment. I pay people about after I've sold it, but now I've got to figure out all these new terms and there was this whole other side of the business. And now Trevor has taken over basically all the retail buying. Like I just trust him with all the money and all the decisions. And like, he, he just is my right-hand man and he does the retail buying. He, he just, he spends the money because he is so good. He is, he is one of the biggest gear nerds that I have ever met in my entire life. And he doesn't bring products in for the sake of bringing products in. Like if he wouldn't use it or he doesn't think it's good, it won't be in our store. Like we don't have it for the sake of having options. So like when we first started ordering in um, water bladders, that, that's a good one, a good example. We ordered, we must have had 15 different models and flavors of, of just, just water bladders from three or four different companies. And we went, this is insane. And we went and we trimmed it back down to three or four. And like now having that whole learning curve of like, okay, cool. Like we know exactly what three things we're going to stock of this item from maybe one or two or maybe three companies and go, nope, you just need to pick between these three. We sli- we already did the research. We sliced away everything else for you because we're not REI and we're not like another huge like specialty retailer where we have, you know, a 10,000 or 12,000 square foot store. We got 6,000 square feet and almost a quarter of that's our service shop. And, you know, so we've got really finite space to, to do what we're doing. And, and the amount of stuff that we're kicking out is pretty incredible for the space that we have. But we, we just have such a, a, a tailored product line for what people want and what people should be using, honestly. Because there, there's a lot of stuff that you shouldn't be using out there. There's a lot of products out there that don't work or aren't designed well. Um, and, and we just don't have any of that because we are such nerds that like we, we know what we don't want to use. And we don't carry it. We, we carry what we would use as, as the ultimate nerds on, no, trust us, th- this is going to be best for you. And that's how we built our reputation. And people don't come back. We don't get returns. People are happy with what they buy from us. So all that said, then, it sounds like maybe this move, this shift to bringing in this move, this shift of going from selling exclusively used equipment to selling both used and new, it sounds like that actually went well or was pretty smooth or seamless. It it honestly was. Um, You know, it was just a, as a business owner, it was just another thing to figure out and conquer and hone in. Like it was just, just kind of the next step, you know, it's just everybody who, Works with me and everybody who, or, or me myself, is like, I am always looking for that next thing to go, how do we make this better? How do we make this more polished? And like at the point that we were at with selling the used gear, you know, we had, you know, almost, I think, 7,000 consigners, like individual people who like sold stuff with my company over seven years. So, I mean, a thousand people, a thousand new people a year were bringing in stuff to sell with my company. And it was just kind of that next, next evolution. And like really for me, it was that I was just, I was always so bummed when I didn't have the right piece of used gear. When somebody come in and like really be able to articulate what they want and like what they plan to use it for and like wanted a product to solve this problem for them. And I didn't have it because nobody brought it to me to sell it. I was like, I want to be able to help this person out. So I need to be able to sell new stuff as well. And I always knew that we weren't going to bring in a whole bunch of stuff. But then like, I couldn't have imagined how well it was going to go too. Fun, fun example with Jameis Bikes. I remember um, 
my server shop manager at the time had heard that Jameis was available in the downtown market. And he was like, and we do, and we crush it with used bikes. I mean, we sell over a thousand used bikes a year, a thousand used bikes a year on consignment. And he was like, we really need to get a new bike brand. He's like, you want to, we, we want to bring Jameis on. They're available. There's very few bike brands available in Boise. There's, there's a ridiculous amount of bike shops in Boise. He's like, we need to get Jameis. And I was like, well, great. How much is the buy-in order? And he's like, you know, 7,500 bucks. And I was like, I mean, I lost. I was like, God, another 7,500 bucks. Like we're already like 40%, like many tens of thousands of dollars over budget on this whole, like getting into new stuff adventure. And we ordered our first order of Jameis bikes in at $7,500 on the minimum. They were sold in under a week. I ordered our $10,000 worth of bikes. They were sold in a week. I ordered $25,000 of bikes. They were sold in two weeks. And in two and a half years, I don't know, it's hundred percent for sure, but I think we're the second biggest dealer in the entire Pacific Northwest in not even three full seasons with Jameis. And I was freaking out about doing a $7,500 initial order. And we're probably doing close to $200,000 a year for Jameis now in our, in our like third year with them. All right. Let's say you were going to open pretty much a, a, a very similar shop to Boise Gear Collective in like a Houston or a Chicago, a bigger much bigger city. Do you believe that you would actually just scale this more and bigger? Or is there something unique about Boise here in that it's got, you know, it's not a massive city by any stretch, but there's a decent population there. And it is kind of in the middle of sort of an outdoor Mecca. Yeah. Like there's variables here, right? Like going into a city where there's a lot more people, okay, a lot more potential customers, but maybe not the same degree of interest in outdoor stuff. How do you think about that one? So uh, a couple of different points that I want to make on this one. Um, first of all, you know, when I say Chicago and Houston, they have different sports. They have different things that they are into there. So um, I've got this cool van that I built that I've been traveling around with. And, and one of my things that I was supposed to do this summer before, before COVID hit was I was going to have my 20-year high school reunion in Wisconsin and I was going to go mountain biking upper Michigan. And then I wanted to go do a bunch of rivers on the East coast. But my plan was, was I was just going to start going down and talking to a bunch of retail shops on the East coast and going, Hey, have you ever thought about adding a used component to this? I know how to do the used component part of it. I know how to integrate it with a retail business. Are you interested in doing this? And I had plans to go do that. And like, I thought about like the deep South and going, okay, so you're probably going to do much more hunting, fishing type of stuff. And I've never been to the deep South, but I think that the, the business model that I have, no matter what the product is, the, the processes is kind of a control C control V type of deal, where it's just like, you know, whatever you're plugging in and putting into your inventory system, you've got to find that mix and you've got to have the expertise to it. But I think the bottom line point is, is that this used and new work really well together. And that, you know, if there's retail shop owners out there thinking about, I'm freaking out about backcountry.com, I'm freaking out about Amazon, or even the ski companies themselves that are selling it at full MSRP on their price and making the whole thing on top of wholesale when I got to buy it at wholesale so I can only make my margin going, well, how, how, do I, how, how do I keep finding these new revenue streams? It's always about new revenue streams and adding this used side of a revenue stream to your new business can be just a really, really great thing, or at least so from my experience. And a number of the other shops that I've worked with, their experience as well. So do you think one of the common objections for a shop that's like, yeah, we've never really embraced, you know, it's maybe more common that a, a shop might have a once a year used gear sale or something. What you're saying is in your experience, I mean, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but like, hey, maybe think about opening it up to doing that. You've got used gear on the floor year round and new gear year round. And I, I could imagine that some shop owners might be worried that the used gear is going to undercut the sale of some of the new stuff. I'm trying to think of like the other, this is leading to the question of what do you think are the most legitimate reasons for not embracing your model like because they are on the face of it the scariest or they're like nah they actually are kind of scary do you know what i mean you know i i would think so 
I only have my perspective of coming from used and going to new and like, and that comes down to image. So uh-huh. image of the store. So when you have a brand new shiny retail shop that like you think about a specialized shop, specialized bicycles controls exactly how that shop looks. Now, if you want to start bringing used bikes into that shop, specialized might not like that. And or you got to find a way around it or, or find some other way to do it. But see, so where I'm come from, like, I mean, I, I was drinking beer with my little brother. He was helping me like we went into I remember going into Lowe's and like figuring out, OK, how do we build ski racks? And we're like grabbing random pieces of lumber and like Lowe's in the aisles going, well, all oh, these cherry timbers look cool. And, oh, we can grab these like slats and make like a lattice work here. And like I'm still using those ski racks eight years later. I just repainted them this spring so that they they look a little bit better. But I think part of what makes Boise Gear Collective awesome is like we kind of have this like edgy ragtag type feel with us where like we don't take any crap from people and like we kind of have our own way of doing things. And, and you know, like that was one of the things that we talked about here recently where it was like, you know, we get a one-star review and we're going to stand up for ourselves yeah. if they're wrong. Yeah. You know, like. The customer is not always right. Like I remember the situation. Like you're you're giving us a one star review for something that we don't deserve, <laughs> and I'm gonna stand up for myself on Google, and I'm gonna call you out. Yeah. Even though every single article out there tells you not <laughs> to do that, that's what I'm gonna do because it's my business, and that's how I feel about it. So I think what it comes down to, with as far as you know, a new shop wanting to add in used stuff is like. We we started out really like just used displays and beat up stuff and stuff piled in the corners. And if you come into our shop right now, our used stuff is displayed almost as well as our new stuff. And just because it's used, don't think that it's going to drag down the image of your shop. It's only going to improve your shop because you're going to open yourself up to an entirely new customer base that's not the price point of somebody who wants to come spend MSRP at a brick and mortar store. This is another point too. So th- there's a there's an attitude that I think a lot of gear shops deservedly get about being snobby and looking down their nose at people. And you know, I remember years ago when I first moved to Boise, and I'll leave the shop's name out of it, but I went in and I was I've been a snowboarder forever, you know? I mean, I I, ha- I have well over a thousand days on a snowboard in my life, but when I got to Idaho, I was kind of bored cuz I moved from Colorado and I was bored with the terrain, I needed something new and I wanted to get into telemark skiing. And I went into the shop to go start learning about telly and I got kicked, not kicked out of the shop, but like I got kind of run out of the shop because like I didn't know what was up. And this was back in 2008 or nine. I'm like, I don't ever want to be that. I don't ever want to have salespeople who aren't going to be anything but welcoming to a complete beginner. Like you can come to our shop and ask a question before you even done the Google search. You didn't even need to do, like, let us be your Google search. You can come in and ask dumb questions. We will take you from square one all the way up. And I think a lot of shops get a really bad reputation for being like, oh, you don't have $1,500 to spend on a ski setup? Then we got no time talking to you. And I'm going to go try and get on some other customer where, like, I can either make commission or, like, whatever. Like, we don't want to do commission at my place. But, um, you know, like, that, that that's a whole thing that, like, you need to shed. And, you know, if that's something that, like, you have an image problem with maybe opening a used side of the shop will do nothing but help your image with that, where you attract different customer and be welcoming to them because that customer, you know, I've been in business for eight years now and I have repeat customers who have come back and, you know, I've sold them two or three sets of used skis. And now guess what? I'm selling them brand new moments, nice Lanix and they're dropping 1500 bucks because not even skiing for seven years because I got them into it years ago. And they do three or four tunes a year with me. And they'll like, and then, oh yeah, then they started buying bikes from me. And when you can cultivate a customer from somebody that like, you can make them feel welcome knowing nothing. Because we are all snobs. Like anybody listening to this cast right now is a gear snob. Like we all are. But we are the minority. There are a lot of people that get out and do these sports occasionally or with a low knowledge level or just want to get out and do it. And like, not everybody is us. And I think as soon as you understand that, that's when you're really going to become successful as a retail owner to go. Not everybody is like us. We are the, we are the non-ordinary ones. We are the weirdos because we know so much about it. So we needed to share and help our other people to get into the outdoors, to let them get into it. 
when you say that, like we are the gear snobs, that still strikes like a sensitive chord with me because I want to deny it. Like I want to be like, well, no, like it is literally our job, right? At Blister to go. Look at where we're sitting. Well, yeah, we got some nice stuff. I mean, we're, we're sitting in like one of the only places this collection of skis exists in the world. Well, that's true. <laughs> but, you know, and it is our job and our kind of commitment, right? From day one that we were going to, I mean, I do feel like a little bit, this was a kind of anti-institutional creation. It's why I started Blister, right? Like I felt like the, a lot of the endemic publications were simply straight up lying about all of this expensive equipment to people who didn't really know and just wanted to go ski or mountain bike or whatever, and just kind of wanted to know what was up or if that ski would be better for them than that one over there. And the endemics were frankly not going to tell them, you know, it is kind of ironic, right? Like we write more in depth than I think anyone on the planet about a lot of this gear, but I kind of did it to be the friend of the people who didn't really know and did just want to go have a good time on the mountain, but no one would tell them the truth. And so for me, like if somebody comes into headquarters, who's like, Hey, what's up? Yeah. I skied like twice in my life and I kind of had fun, but I don't really understand it. I actually have a better time talking with those people than the person who comes in and clearly lives on like internet forums and wants to sit down and like impress me with how much they know, that's the most intolerable conversations. Like I, those bring me no joy, right? So I don't know, I, this is all a long-winded way to say like, I like the idea in theory at least that we could still care a lot about the details of all of this stuff. And yet it is kind of for the newbie when the person comes and is just like, hey, man, I'd, I'd love to learn more about this sport. What do I need? It's like, well, I feel like it is an important part of our mission to, to get better and better and offer more and more useful ways to help that person. So I was going to try and sum this up with uh, kind of two quick thoughts. So number one, I think this is why you and I have gotten along so well in all of our conversations since we met. Because I think we have a lot of the same thinking and a lot of these same philosophies about about the outdoor gear industry and and how it should be presented to people and how we should be bringing people into yeah. the industry. And, and the other side of it is you're you're absolutely right. Some of the most enjoyable conversations that you can have are when you can, as the expert, take somebody who comes in who genuinely wants to know. And ask good questions and you can walk them through the whole process. Like I will admit, I get super annoyed by like beginners or people who haven't skied in a while going like, yeah, back in the day, he, 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 our skis were all above our head and they were nice and stuff. Like, okay, that joke was like 10 years old, but like, cool. Welcome to my shop. Let's start over fresh because you're decades behind. But let me start out at square one and I will walk through like, you know, the Elan SCX and like the first shape ski and like go through like how we went through shaped and then we went through rocker and then we're going to talk about degrees of rocker and then we're going to talk about side cut and I'm going to equate side cut to the different types of ski racing and I'm going to say so you know those slalom turns those really quick turns that's about a 14 meter and you know like GS that's about a 16 meter and you know downhill gets about to like that 2021 like that's and people can like visualize that you can see like the light bulb go on or like when you're trying to fit a ski boot with somebody and you're like I have this whole process that I've developed and like, cause I fit used ski boots. Like I we're, we're getting an oven this year. Yeah. Finally, we're, we're going to be able to cook liners this year, but this is just like where we're at in our trajectory because we sold used stuff. Yeah. But you know, we don't do boot fitting, but we've developed a really, really good process for trying on five to 10 pairs of used boots, slicing away all the other stuff, giving that customer a very detailed methodical way of thinking about how that ski boot fits their foot, how it interfaces with them, and then giving them the tools to work through the next five or six boots on their own in a very methodical way so that at the end when they tried on 10 boots, it might not be a, a crazy like $500 boot fit. But you know what? For that customer, 
They're in the best fitting boot after they've tried it on because we've given them the information to be able to work through that process. And when they buy that boot, like I, I haven't had ski boots come back. Like occasionally they do, but like, I, I mean, it's like people keep their stuff when they leave my store with it. Like stuff doesn't come back generally. Like we got them into the right stuff because we took them the time and we gave them the right information to make the right decision. And I think that's that really big attitude shift on making sure that you're welcoming to all customers because you never know that customer over the course of their life, shit, they may spend $20,000 with you. Who knows? I plan on being in business for a long time. I might see that customer every single year for summer gear and winter gear for the next 20 years, just because I made a really good first impression and I was welcoming to them when they were a total beginner. And I got them into multiple sports over multiple time. And they were always welcome to come in my store and ask basic questions. Let's talk a little bit about some of your predictions for the upcoming winter season and just your opinion, right? And it's been fun to just collect some different data points and, you know, we'll we'll find out in a few months who's right and who's wrong. But I think it's just useful to get the two cents from people as we've been doing from kind of all around the world, you know, so... I don't know, strong, if you have to pull out your crystal ball, what are you sort of envisioning for this coming winter? Lots and lots and lots of snow. (laughs) Is that, is that a, is that a prediction or like a wish list? That's just a wish list. Yeah. Um, Predictions as far as like where I sit in my world. um, So as a business owner, this time of year, like I am always just like, please no, please no. Like I just need like that that dusting of snow on top of the mountains that you can see from town or like some kind of like get wet, get rainy, get cold, like get people thinking about winter stuff. Cause like November is always nail biting. December is always phenomenal, but like November is always nail biting. And like Boise happens to have gotten like bogus gotten like three feet of snow in the past couple of days. And I'm having record sales this month. And I see a pent up demand for outdoor gear. Like I haven't seen the entire eight years that I've been in business. Um, the, the summer was ridiculous. You know, when I, when I was sitting at home worried because my business was closed in April, wondering if I was going to survive or what I was going to do or what's my exit strategy or how can I salvage this? If like this pandemic destroys the world. And then all of a sudden, like May rolls around and I open the doors for business on May 1st. Cause the governor of Idaho said we could. And all of a sudden we were just flooded with people and bike service went through the roof because people want to get out and ride their bikes. And all of a sudden we couldn't get bikes. We couldn't get tires. We couldn't get success. We couldn't get tubes. And like, it just went insane. And I think that with, um, a couple of my, a couple of my coworkers and managers are, are a little bit more cautious optimism than I am. Um, just because of some of the limiting factors of what a ski season is versus like the great outdoors outside of a ski area boundary. I, I think that even with like limited capacities and with like the Epic Pass, like having to do reservations, I think that mom and pop ski areas are going to thrive this year because I think people are going to want to find smaller ski areas. And I will tell you from somebody who's skied a lot of those smaller ski areas, go see your smaller ski areas because they're cool. You know, if you don't want to go to, if you want to go to Vail Resorts or Altera Resorts, any ones that they own, like go to, go to plays up in Northern Washington or Montana or whatever that have like one or two rickety lifts. Like you're going to have a great time. Um, plus they would love to have you there. They will be so welcoming to have you there. My, I think one of my biggest predictions and something that we've banked on a lot is, you know, we're, we're everybody's first stop for backcountry gear. Um, because everybody knows it's expensive. So they want to come in and see what they can find used. Problem is we don't hardly ever have anything used for backcountry gear. Now this year, I think that a lot of people that have been sitting on their hands or really kicking about it or like thinking, Oh, am I going to do it? When am I going to do it? This is the year they pull the trigger. So we have gone huge on our backcountry orders. Uh, like we've doubled and tripled our backcountry orders over the course of the summer for um, Alpine touring bindings and skins and beacons and shovels and probes and all of that stuff. And, you know, Avalanche Education Places, places like Sawtooth Mountain Guides, I'm sure are already booked for the entire year and are so busy that like they're just like can't even do education anymore because they have every single guide available for everything possible. I think this is the year that everybody who wants to get into backcountry skiing will do it and pull the trigger, even if it's brand new stuff and they've got to spend $2,500 on skis, boots, bindings, shovel probe, airbag pack, like everything, like they're going to pull the trigger this year. Um, so we've, we, we've hedged and we, we put money into that 
to stock our inventory really well on the backcountry skiing stuff. Uh, I, I think on top of that, I think just generally people are going to want to get outside again. You know, we're still, we're looking at, Europe's looking at new lockdowns. Oregon just did new lockdowns. But, you know, skiing is one of those things that you can go do. We might not be able to sit in the lodge or have apres ski, which makes me cry because I love apres ski. <laughs> but like, you know, like we might not be able to do that this year, but we can go ski. We can go be with our friends and our small groups of people that we normally hang out with and still do our socially responsible thing, but still have some kind of normalcy in our life. And, you know, right now, this winter for the next couple of months, skiing is that normalcy for a lot of people. And for a lot of other people, it's a new thing that they're going to go do. And if you sell used stuff, you lower that barrier and new people can get out and go do something fun outdoors when they can't go do anything else. And maybe they'll be skiers for the rest of their life. I like this take of yours. I really like this take of yours. This is a very optimistic, but also like not like insane optimism. It sounds like you, you put out a really compelling case and um, it is funny. I, I'm starting to think through a lot of the sort of media pundits and the rest, a lot of extremely smart people, by the way, I, I don't mean to suggest otherwise, but when a lot of these predictions are about how it's going to be such a hard, terrible winter, it just dawned on me while you were talking that none of them are skiers. So they are still thinking about the kind of people who don't really go outside, don't outdoor recreate. So they're still thinking about restaurants and bars and the like. But those of us who actually sort of live to be outside on snow during the winter months. Nothing's changed for us. We're, we're going to have, when I say we're going to miss Apre. I'm, I'm not going to be able to like go hang out with the moose, whatever, in Jackson Hole and like listen to the country brand band and go grab some cute girl to go dance with her. Like I won't get to go to Apre this year, but I can still go ski and then I can just go back to my van and. And maybe hang out in the parking lot with another van or two and like talk to them or something like that. I don't know. Six feet away. I like it. Here's hoping for your your vision of the world. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, you know, there were a lot of sort of doomsday scenarios coming into the summer months. And then we saw, I mean, a wonderful period for bike companies and running companies and the rest. And so, yeah, here's hoping that we see some of those same scenarios replicated this winter. It'd be kind of great. My final thought for the night. First of all, it's been really, really good to be here. Um, really fun to be in Crested Butte. And it's so cool to sit in this room with all these new skis here. <laughs> and like, um, th this is really an honor to have been here tonight. So I just want to, I want to say thanks on while I'm still on the podcast to say, <laughs> I, I respect, um, I was telling you at dinner that like, we read at Boise Gear Collective, we, we had blister guides on our shelves before I even knew you. And like this, this was what we believed and because of how you run what you do here, because it's the most honest thing. And that's what we resonated with. My final thought for the night is that, you know, getting outside is kind of all of our salvations and whatever we can do to spread that to people who aren't outside on a regular basis Let's do whatever we can to help them get outside and maybe make a little bit of money in the meantime. You know, let's help them have a good time, get outside, help their mental health, maybe have them do a, a sport that they haven't done before, but they've only been a little bit interested in. So be welcoming to the, those total beginners, knowing that they probably need that for their own happiness in life right now. And like what we do is actually really important. You know, it's always been really important to mental health, but like really, truly like the, the, the way that we help people get outside and, you know, those ski trips are the highlights of the year for so many people. And we, as the retailers are the ones who help them get there to make sure that their gear is exactly what they need to go do that. So let's get people outside this winter. And I know I'm going skiing. Great thoughts. Really appreciate the kind words. I've really enjoyed having you here on this trip and um, good luck with all of it in your neck of the woods. Say hi to your staff uh, from us here. Yeah, it's uh, really, I, I feel very heartened and encouraged from your thoughts. So uh, I'm rooting for your crystal ball. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> um, hey man, thank you. You've, uh, you've survived an episode of Gear 30. So did a great job. Excellent. Well, 
Thanks for uh, spending a couple of minutes. Hopefully you're driving someplace cool while you're listening to this podcast to go on some adventure and you're listening to me drink White Claws and talk about (laughs) selling skis. So, bye. Okay, it is time now for our What We're Celebrating segment. And this week, this is a real easy one because five days from right now, it is opening day here at Crested Butte Mountain Resort. And I am just really, really, really ready to click back into skis. So here's to riding chairs with your friends and making early season turns down groomed snow. And so now I am going to raise this glass that I have in my hand. I've got actually Whistle Pig's farm stock rye in my hand. And I'm going to now drink to opening day. Boy, those are sweet words, aren't they? Opening day. So, cheers. And that then brings us to the end of this episode of Gear 30. Thanks to Tyson for the conversation. Thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And thanks to you all for listening. Until next time, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again real soon.